Hello, and welcome to Wands and Fronds, the weekly podcast that covers magic, houseplants, and more. I'm Nick. And I'm Shannon. And we're your co-hosts. So today we're going to be going over the very important concept of shadow work. Cue the dramatic music here. (laughs) And I'm going to be covering Datura stramonium, commonly known as Jimson weed or devil snare. Or uh, my favorite name for Datura, Moonflowers. Oh, Moonflowers is way sweeter. Um, I will, before I even get started, I was going to talk about this a little later, but I think it's hilarious that the name Jimson Weed actually comes from around 1676 in Jamestown. It poisoned a group of soldiers who, depending on which story you read, either made the flowers and the leaves into a soup or ate the berries. And they were discovered in various places throughout Jamestown days later delirious and naked i mean yeah so i <laughs> <laughs> no uh moon flowers though that sounds way nicer it does it sounds way nicer but i think after knowing that weird little factoid i think jimson weed might be my favorite new nickname for it oh sure 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 But yeah, so I'm going to go ahead and hop in because there is, you know, there's a lot to cover about this one. It's one of the most widely known folklore medicinal herbs. Um, So Datura stramonium is a bit more of an intense topic because it is a poison. So I've gone a little bit more academic than I normally would with my resources. Just to be extra cautious, um, the University of Wisconsin-Madison published a great article on Datura for its Master Gardening Extension course. Uh, And I also read several articles from the Journal of Drug Delivery and Therapeutics that was written by um, Indian practitioners. Um, And for the metaphysical side, I read a great article on alchemyworks.com and and of course, Green Witchcraft by Paige Vanderbeck and the thethirdwave.co. So those are the things that I'm going to be referencing today. Um, all of them are fantastic. And yeah, so we'll go ahead and get started. Um, this, this herb has been used for a long time. Um, even back in ancient civilizations, it was used for religious visionary purposes. Uh, in India, the god Lord Shiva was known to smoke cannabis and datura. And people will still use this plant for offerings during festivals for Shiva icons at temples. Um, And in Europe, it was commonly known as an herb that was used uh, by witches in something called flying ointments, which Mm. (laughs) we'll go over a little bit later. But yeah, like you alluded to, Nick, though, the plant has beautiful flowers. Um, And even though every part of the plant is poisonous, there are a ton of people who still choose to grow it. Um, It is, like I said, it's gorgeous. But if you do, I really recommend that you're just extremely careful. This is a gloves on plant, I would say. Uh, And also check your local restrictions because it is illegal to grow in some states and municipalities. So just proceed with caution. You know, and I I just kind of want to jump in here, though, and say that Um, they are very dangerous for gardening, but uh, on the other side of that coin, they do bloom in the moonlight. And, you know, I think as witches, uh, especially, you know, those of us with access to a yard, that would be such a nice touch when you're out there doing your rituals at the new moon, at the full moon, you know, like as like a moonlight garden. And I've seen uh, this. I actually, you know, it grows pretty well here in Austin. And I've seen some beautiful Datura plants used in like home landscaping. Mm. So, you know, it's, you know, even if you're not touching it, 
you know, it's a very, especially if you're not in, you know, touching it or, or, you know, fucking with it too much. (laughs) It's a, it's really nice. It's really nice to just have on a, you know, it kind of creeps. It's a creeping vine, kind of like, uh, like morning glory. So you put it up in in a corner on a little trellis and it just really, really is nice. Yeah, they're really beautiful. Um, They are very herbaceous. They're annuals or short-lived perennials. They're actually from the tomato family, of course. They're one of the nightshades. It's the Solanaceae family. And they have kind of a confused taxonomy and a very disputed origin um, because they became extensively naturalized throughout temperate and tropical regions worldwide a very long time ago. My favorite weird kind of funny thing about them is of the eight or nine species in the genus Datura, many naturally actually exhibit extreme variability in their foliar and floral characteristics. And a lot of them are very similar in appearance, depending on the conditions the plant is growing under, the size of the plants, the leaves and the flowers, they can range from really large to really small. Um, So it's actually led to this kind of funny confusion among scientists where a bunch of new species will be described that are later found out to simply be variations that developed in different locations because of the conditions. So it's definitely mind boggled some scientists, which I always find kind of funny. So they're like, uh, oh, I discovered a new species. And they're like, no, that one's just not doing so well. Yeah, yeah. And these these are a plant that are very dependent on the conditions they're grown in. Um, so the Datura stramonium, which we're talking about, does generally get to be about three to four feet tall and wide, but it can sort of like flop under its own weight. So your suggestion to put it up on a trellis is really, really smart. And it has these really beautiful dark green leaves with jagged edges and the flowers are trumpet shaped. And when you're thinking about the jagged edges, I think the closest approximation that I could kind of think of is that very stereotypical Christmas holly, you know, that type of jagged edge. Um, But yeah, these trumpet flowers are... So, so beautiful. They range from, you know, white to pinkish purple. And at night, like Nick mentioned, they bloom at night and they emit this really gorgeous honeysuckle like smell. And, you know, let's give it up for our nighttime pollinators. They're primarily pollinated by sphinx moths, um, which again, that's why they bloom at night. You see uh, a lot of the plants that do have their flowers bloom at night are pollinated by things like moths and bats. So, you know, save the bees, definitely. But we also can't forget about our nighttime pollinator brethren. They're doing some really important work. Also, moths are just so cool. I know. And I love the name Sphinx Moth. It just feels, it feels magical. There are a lot of moths around my place here in LA. Um, And in particular, I've been dealing with their uh, delightful little moth caterpillar larvae eating a bunch of my uh, spearmint, but I forgive them. They're doing what they do. I actually, I had a batch of Southern flannel moths at my last apartment a few months ago that were really taking over and um, eating a few of my plants. So I, yeah, my condolences. Yeah, it's really, I mean, luckily it's mint and, you know, it'll take over everything if you don't keep an eye on it. So it'll be fine. It'll bounce back. But it's very sad when you go out one day expecting to clip some herbs and you find just sad bare branches. But that is what moths do. But anyway, so these beautiful trumpet shaped flowers, once they're spent, it leaves behind this really cool kind of like spiky looking fruit that's about the size of an apricot. And that is where all of the seeds are held. And then, you know, when it falls, the seeds are they're kind of like 
brown, almost like kidney bean shaped, but a little bit flat. Um, and that's that's what the seed looks like. So it it does grow best in full sun, which again, Nick, no wonder it does well in Austin. You can grow mm. it in partial shade, but that'll make it get leggier and you won't have as many flowers. And then maybe you'll think you've discovered a new genus and it turns <laughs> up, it's just mad at you. <laughs> um, and it can grow in a variety of soils, but it does best in hummus-rich, loamy soil. So I wanted to kind of get into that a little bit here. So hummus or humus, depending on the person i've heard it pronounced differently it's a it's a, it's a dip with chickpeas and lemon <laughs> juice and yes. garlic and tahini right and it's great for your plants um but no humus is it's the crumbly loose material that comes from the decay of like organic matter peat moss grass clippings leaf compost wood chips um garden waste you know all of the stuff that just naturally occurs outside. It's the reason that you shouldn't rake all of your leaves if you don't have an HOA up your ass because it really does great stuff for the soil. Um, And soil is classified by the amount of silt, sand, and clay that it contains. And so depending on the ratios, that's where you're going to get different soil subtypes. And loamy soil contains almost even silt and sand with a little bit of clay added in. Um, And you can think about the texture of loamy soil is like if you picked up a handful of it and it was a little damp, you could form it into a ball, but the ball would crumble if you poked it with your finger and it would break apart super easily when it dried. And I think for a lot of people, that's probably the best way to check the type of soil in your garden, because I don't know. I mean, I have never sent off the soil around my place to a lab. I mean, I guess you could, but... I mean, you know, I'm sure there's scientists out there that are just dying to get their hands on a handful of your soil. Totally. (laughs) But it does help. I mean, if you're a home gardener, it's super important to know the type of soil that you have because it really will change the type of amendments you need to add and it'll really impact the things that do well. Obviously, if you're doing container gardening, you have more control. But if you're a home gardener and you have one of those amazing backyards I've heard so much about, figure out what type of soil you have. Anyway, like like I mentioned earlier, though, this has been used a lot um, in you know different cultures throughout the world and in particular in Ayurvedic medicine, uh, which is why I had so many great uh, journals from different medical professionals in India writing about Datura. And in Ayurvedic medicine, it's used as an analgesic and as an asthma treatment. And the leaves can be used for the relief of headache and the vapors from a leaf infusion is used to relieve the pain of rheumatism and gout. And the smoke from the burning leaf is inhaled for the relief of asthma and bronchitis. Um, I thought it was so funny because I realized when I was doing my research here that they actually did that in an episode of Outlander. Claire is trying to help this lawyer that has asthma while they're out collecting rents. And she has him smoke some leaves from the jimson weed plant uh, through his pipe and it helps him feel better so you know points for points for medical accuracy in that show (laughs) Um, but its leaves contain hyoscyamine which is also known as datarine so it's a naturally occurring tropane alkaloid and it's a plant toxin essentially that's found in the solanaceae family it's the thing that makes nightshades poisonous and the concentration varies which is why it's more dangerous to eat datura than it is to eat you know a tomato Um, (laughs) right 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 
Exactly. And uh, hyoslamine is used to provide symptomatic relief of a lot of different things like spasms caused by like lower abdominal and bladder disorders. Um, It's also been used to relieve some heart problems, control the symptoms of Parkinson's disease, uh, and also for control of abnormal respiratory systems and what they call like hypermucus secretions in patients with lung disease. So, you know, people that have like asthmatic or chronic bronchitis, things like that, that cause their lungs to produce too much mucus, this can kind of help dry it out. So it is, yeah, it's incredibly useful medicinally. And there are a million and one different research papers on it. Um, And hyoscyamine is actually used synthetically in a lot of modern pharmaceuticals. So this, this type of medicinal use of this herb is very well documented. But again, when you have too much of this toxin, it is poisonous. It can cause hallucinations. Um, In the 1990s and 2000s, there was an uptick in deaths in the U.S. because of the consumption of this plant. Um, It really, I I mean, it doesn't come to play and it it can be so helpful, but it can also just be so dangerous. Now, now this is is one of the uses I've actually heard of this with with Jimson weed. I remember in Oklahoma... I think it was someone died from it. Yeah, there were like over a hundred deaths in the nineties from it, which isn't a lot. But I mean, when you think about the fact that they're eating um, an herb that's been used in medicine for a long time, it's interesting. But you know, that's why with herbalism in particular, if you are not extremely confident in what you have, you just have to be so careful because the thing about plants is the the concentrations of these things can also vary from plant to plant. And depending on the type of carrier you put it in, it can be more potent than others. So, you know, if you're wanting to work with something like Tatura, I would just really recommend you see like an Ayurvedic doctor or a licensed herbalist, somebody that really knows what they're doing because it can kill you. Anyway, so now on to the metaphysical. Um, I I love that the nightshade family is often referred to by people as a group of sisters. And it does to me have this really feminine energy. You know, when I look at the moonflower, as you said, Nick, I mean, that is just like screaming divine feminine, like nobody's business. Um, And it's element that it's associated with is water. And the planets are Venus and Saturn and the astrological sign of Capricorn, which is my partner's sign. I think Capricorn, like Virgo, is such a misunderstood sign. I think Earth signs get a lot of unfair shit because they're not, you know, they're not seen as sexy and mysterious. But like Earth signs hold it down, man. Like you want a Virgo or a Capricorn on your team. Oh, for sure. And, you know, just to like add to that it's like there are elements of that earthy energy that are very sexy like as far as i mean even if we're throwing like taurus in there you know it's like what can be nicer than like a home-cooked meal just for you you know or like someone being concerned for you in like a very real way like that is mm. I know. I think that we're a very sensual people, but or like, you know, <laughs> or like getting getting advice. I mean, in Virgos, I think will give you the advice that you need to hear. And it's you know, a lot of times people will like reject it, but it's like it's customized. You have known me for a long time. I'm sure that you have witnessed countless times me 
me giving what I think is just fantastic advice. That oh, sure. is, and you've thought about it. That's what's great it, about Virgos. Yeah. You've thought about it. You're like offering a custom solution to someone else with like a very specific problem, and it's like you know all that effort. That's commendable. Oh, this is why I love you. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so um. Uh, back to Deterra, though, and this beautiful, beautiful, scary poisonous plant. Um, as we touched on earlier, you know, it has been used in shamanic practices for vision quests. Um, some people claim it can be an aphrodisiac, which I think is probably related to it being, um, you know, to it being a Venus herb. And the Kama Sutra does actually contain a description of an ointment made from Deterra and some other herbs. So, you know, there's some sexiness there. Uh, one of the symptoms of poisoning from having too much of this hyoscyamine can also be like increased sexual drive in addition mm. to the hallucinations. So I, there is something there. But if it lasts for more than four hours, please contact your doctor. Definitely please contact <laughs> your doctor if it lasts longer than four hours. Nobody has that kind of time anymore, especially no, if you're certainly... with an earth sign. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it's also associated with flying ointments, which we'll go into a little bit more in depth in our questionable witchy practices section. But anyway, Deterra is sometimes integrated also into ayahuasca brews under the pseudonym Toe, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and it has its pros and cons, you know, like ayahuasca ceremonies, standalone Toe ceremonies have been practiced by Amazonian communities for generations. Um, they're called dream journeys. And these Datura focused experiences are used to enhance the power of divination and vision. And in some cultures, adding Toe to an ayahuasca brew is a traditional element of the ayahuasca ceremony. But with the caveat, there's been a huge growth of ayahuasca tourism, uh, which I think anybody who's done any sort of psychedelics has probably heard about. And it's led to this huge rush of underqualified or even completely unqualified pseudo quote unquote shamans looking to cash in on it. And in those settings, the brews might mostly be made up of Datura with little to no ayahuasca at all, which, as we've discussed, Datura has a pretty high risk level and that can be dangerous. So if you're going to embark on a Toei journey or an ayahuasca ceremony, please, please, please vet the retreat and the acting shaman in order to avoid a dangerous situation. And, you know, it doesn't hurt to even ask reputable places what exactly they're putting in their brew. If you're paying to go on an ayahuasca or a Toei retreat, the place should be able to tell you what they're going to be giving you. And if they can't, that is a big old red flag. You know, and I would also say, and, you know, this is something I have actually experienced um, personally from people that I've met. Um, you know, like going to the jungle and having a, uh, a Caucasian American, uh, quote unquote, spirit guide administer an ayahuasca journey to you actually is um, not it. No. Yeah, I think that's a good that is a good clarification. I want to say I am under a pretty firm belief that it is very, very, very rare for a white American to be able to genuinely call themselves a shaman. It's it's not something that is inherent in white Western European culture. Mm -hmm. um, so <laughs> I mean, this could this could have been our questionable witchy practice for this week is like going 
on one of these, you know, I mean, I don't I don't even want to say it's fake. I mean, a lot of times these people are actually doing real ayahuasca uh, with with the whole, you know, psychedelic menagerie of plants in, you know, where it's you're actually going on the vision quest. But then, you know, to have and I mean, you know, just to have some some privileged person, you know, who's like living down there doing ayahuasca yeah spiritual i mean i and you know there's nothing wrong with that i would say there's nothing wrong with like going through with these kinds of things i would just say if you're letting someone guide you spiritually on something this intense it should be someone that's actually familiar with this spirituality and there are people that do that and i you know i just think there's like this weird step in between where you could go get this stuff and do it like drugs you know because it's like it's 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 for it's for spiritual reasons you know you're not just out in the jungle having fun yeah and i think too it's like if you want to go on this type of you know spiritual tourism and do ayahuasca you can find native peoples to pay to do this with you. I think that it's always better with something like this to make sure that when you go, you're enriching the community that you're taking from as opposed to just taking. And I think that that's so easy to do. We have the internet. We have research. There aren't really any good excuses for being like a shitty spiritual tourist other than laziness. And that's like, shame on you. Also, you know, Bring ayahuasca Chad with you as an interpreter, if that makes you feel better. Yeah, there are so many options, but just make sure that, number one, it's a reputable place. Ask them what's in it. If they aren't willing to even tell you the basic makeup of what's in it, that's kind of a danger sign. Look out for white guys with dreads that tell you they're going to be able to change your life for a low, low fee. (laughs) That's creepy. (laughs) Um, But yeah, and ayahuasca, again, I have personally not experienced ayahuasca, but I know people that have, and it can be a really powerful spiritual experience. But as with any hallucinogens, there's also a lot of room for it to become a bad trip and for it to become traumatic, which is why it's good to be around people that are very experienced in the spiritual side of this, because then they can truly guide you in that way, as opposed to just sitting there in a smoky room with you while you're high on ayahuasca. So, you know, but if you're not going to do ayahuasca, Like, what is something that you would recommend for people to do if they were interested in incorporating this into their home practice? Yeah, I think that number one, growing it, like you said, is such a beautiful addition to a witch's garden. Just be careful, wear gloves. I mean, I have grown some nightshades myself and they can cause like some skin irritation and things like that, but there's no reason not to grow it. And one of the best recommendations that I actually read for sort of accessing the visionary qualities of Datura without ingesting it is to actually, you know, inhale the scent of the flower and then meditate, kind of like what you were getting at, Nick. I think this could be a beautiful, powerful ritual to do on a new moon night when, you know, it's it's really dark and you go and you sit out in your garden and these blooms open up and you can just take a deep inhale of that sweet floral scent and really like sit with yourself and whatever spiritual guides you work with and meditate. I think that that would be amazing. I mean, I, I really want to do that. I need to go find some. Um, 
And since it's also really connected to the third eye and divination, I think you could sew some of it into the lining of a bag that you want to carry your tarot deck in. Um, You know, Mm. maybe some of the dried leaves or the dried flowers. Um, Of course, be careful that it's actually in the lining. So it's not going to be getting all over your cards. Um, But I do love that idea, too, of just like carrying that Datura energy around with your tarot deck, I feel like that would be such a really fantastic enhancement to your divination tools. And you know, the, they do smell lovely. I mean, you know, they do. They do smell lovely. They smell so good. And you can buy essences of it. Again, I would just really recommend if you're planning to buy like the essences of this flower, please make sure you're going to someone reputable. Stuff like this is just, it's so much more dangerous to get bad poison than to get like some shitty you know rosemary or parsley you just want to make sure you're really vetting who it's coming from and we'll get into this in the next section but bane folk is a really fantastic um business it's uh run by this woman sarah ann lawless she does a lot of great work in the poison path and they actually do sell things like detura essence online and i think that she's a fantastic source to go to for things like this so um, again, I, I always think you should be careful where you're buying metaphysical things for. Uh, we're energy workers. Bad energy can come from anywhere, and you don't want to be bringing that into your business. But in particular, with poisons, please just be extra, extra cautious. Um, there's so many things that can go wrong, and your health isn't worth it. So just make sure you're vetting people. And so kind of with that in mind, you know, you we were talking about how... <laughs> Um, doing, you know, like uh, questionable ayahuasca trips uh, on your vacation <laughs> could have been the questionable witchy practice this week. But, you know, we're kind of talking about protecting yourself from poisonous things. And you had some information with us about flying ointments. Yeah. So flying ointments are fascinating. Um, I literally just mentioned her, but Sarah Ann Lawless has a really phenomenal article on the Banefolk.com website about the history of flying ointments that goes super in depth. And I highly recommend it. But as a brief history, um, a flying ointment is a salve that's made with rendered animal fat or vegetable oil, which has been infused with poisonous psychoactive herbs, usually including things from the nightshade family like henbane, datura, uh, belladonna. Uh, and then the ointment was allegedly used by witches to fly to their sabbat rites to shapeshift or to curse people. Um, and of course, a lot of this was happening during what are called the burning times, you know, when people were trying to accuse everyone of being a witch. And one of the dumbest weird things that was spread about it for a while was that rendered baby fat was used um, because obviously witches are burning babies. Uh <laughs> Anyway, there's a lot of documentation from the early modern period uh, during the height of witch hunts in Europe, but these are also referenced in some ancient mythology and literature as well, um, as far back as 200 BCE. And some people argue that in the Iliad, which was written in 800 BCE, that there is a reference to a flying ointment when the goddess Hera uses an oil of ambrosia to fly to Olympus while never touching the earth. So some people read that oil of ambrosia as being a flying ointment. So we know at least 200 BCE, though. So it's been used for a really long time. Um, But this is where it gets to me. 
super questionable. So on the Reddit page, Grimoire Request, there is a huge post on how to make your own authentic flying ointment at home by yourself. And I cannot stress enough how dangerous that is. Uh, And it's super questionable for a lot of reasons. So first, these ingredients like Datura, Henbane, Belladonna, they are super poisonous. They can straight up kill you. But secondly, I really have to question seasoned practitioners who would put this type of information out on the internet without any sort of disclaimers, without any sort of warning, just to just to have it out there. And things like that are easily accessible by young witches. And, you know, of course, we'd love to assume that every single person that runs across something on a website is going to do their research into each of the ingredients and learn about the dangers. But you know, I, I looked at something like that and I was like, I can only imagine how cool I would have thought that was when I was 13. Oh, man. And, you know, it's kind of like and these are people who are practitioners or I mean, you know, at least to all appearances, you know, you can look at people's profiles and things and kind of get a good idea. You know, these these are not necessarily dumb people. They're just spreading dumb information. Yeah. But I mean, you know, but this is not your you know, your friend's brother, you know, smoking a joint in the garage and telling you that you can get high if you eat the seeds from Jimson weed. Yeah. Like these, are, you know, these are people who are answering people's questions or like putting this information out there for new practitioners that they're going to maybe take seriously. And, you know, I think the Internet provides a level of anonymity that is sometimes good but sometimes, you know, kind of dangerous. It's like, you don't know. The comment section, I think, really spoke to, and of course, you know, I really love to read the comments. I love, like, picking at a scab, that type of sensation of reading Mm, them. mm -hmm. But I think the the general sentiment of a lot of people was like, oh, this is great, so interesting. And one person, like myself, was expressing concern that this shouldn't be out there without any sort of, you know, cautionary statements. And the general feeling about that was, you know, people were just like, oh, well, it's fine. People should know. If you don't know that, uh, if you don't know that nightshades are dangerous, well, then that's your fault. And no, it's, it's not fair to do that to people. I think in particular, we just have to be really aware with something like the internet. It's so easy for young practitioners, new witches to get access to information. And I think as people with more practice under their belt, there's a responsibility just to be safe about what you're putting out there as well. Um, so to me, it's like, this is this is questionable for two reasons. Number one, it's super questionable to me that somebody would make their own flying ointment at home if they're not a trained herbalist. No, why? Um, <laughs> but but, right, but right. number two, just the questionableness of like other seasoned practitioners very cavalierly throwing this type of information to the wind on the internet where it can be accessed by anyone. Um, So again, flying ointments are a thing that you can get, but I would say for the love of God, please find a reputable herbalist to work with. You know, there's a lot of things to consider on the poison path. You know, it's not just about knowing that this particular ingredient is poisonous. It's like, 
Are you taking any pharmaceutical medications that might have an interaction? Do you personally have medical history that might have a weird interaction with this? Are you allergic to something else that means you'll be allergic to this? These are all. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, if we're talking about nightshades. Yeah. And these are all questions that a licensed, reputable herbalist will know to ask and understand how to tailor the experience to you. So just don't go into it blind. Please be careful when you're working with poisons. And also just, God, research anything that you find on the internet. Don't just take it to be at face value because there is, as we are learning more and more in this segment, some really questionable witchy practices online. Yes, I, I know, and you know, we're, I'm definitely giving that one a questionable too. Totally. Like, like, I wish I had a stamp, like a little, like so I could go. Choo. I know. I feel like we need to get like a questionable, questionable stamp uh, sound effect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll work on that. We'll work on that. And if anyone, if anyone out there is interested in uh, in that, let us know if you're if you're for throwing some sound effects in to jazz things. If you're up. listening to this and you're like, this could use more cowbell, let us know. Um, but after my soapbox, Nick, I'm <laughs> I'm so excited. It's so it's okay. It's okay, Hermione Granger. Thank you. You've given us all of the information that we could po- we could possibly I need. have. I, I I read more scientific journals than I have since college. So it was a it was a nice research, but I'm glad that we're talking about your topic because I think shadow work, I mean, hello, we are in Scorpio season. We've got a new moon in Scorpio coming up. Mm, this is mm-hmm. such a good time of year to talk about this. I'm lo- I'm loving that and hating it at the same time. I think that's going to be like a running theme here. <laughs> but um I do just want to say, you know, don't introduce my topic, Shannon. Don't don't ever do that. <laughs> So, um, Nick, take it away, please. We're going to talk about this later, but I <laughs> actually I wanted to start I wanted to start off my section about shadow work by asking you uh, a couple of questions. So I'm looking at my clock now. It's um, probably about five fifty ish there in Los Angeles. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And so, if you if you look out your window, what are you seeing right now? The dark. The dark. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know how's that making you feel that you're, you're you're the sun's the sun's going down. It's not even dinner time yet. I know. You know, I personally love the dark time of the year because I like that it gets light so much earlier in the day. But it is a bummer that I work usually nine to six is my typical work schedule. So by mm. the time I get off work, it's totally dark outside. And if I have stuff to do with like my outdoor plants, you know, doing all of that by artificial light is really hard. So it does get really, it it becomes a bit of a downer because you feel like the day is already completely done by the time you get off work. Yeah, it's time to go to bed. Exactly. It's time to drink a bunch of wine and go to bed and be sad. (laughs) So, okay, this time of year can be straining for everyone. And aside from the external stress that we're facing with holidays and being more cooped up indoors than usual. Now, this year's a little weird because I think... um, a lot of very responsible people have just been cooped up since like March. I know. I was going to say cooped up has been exponentially extended this year. And you were saying that this is a, it's an emperor year. And so Shadow's been jumping out. Yeah. For the collective this year. 
Well, yeah, because the the teacher card for the emperor card is death. Right. And so I think, you know, it's like this pandemic and this whole quarantine idea is like a really sort of like an, an extended version of what we all kind of go through every winter. I mean, you know, even in Texas, I got to say, it's um, it's not expected to drop below 60 overnight or even I think 70 tonight, especially. So, you know, it's not cold. I can be outside, but we're, we're, we're all kind of inside. Um, and we're, we're stressed out. The holidays are coming up and our shadow selves are really jumping out at this time of year. And I, you know, an analogy that I kind of wanted to make here is like in the fall, when the leaves fall off the trees, it reveals the branches underneath and the trunk and the, the structure that's holding up the tree all year round. But when you know you look at it in the summer, it's just a stick with a ball of leaves on top from a distance. Yeah, you can't even see the branches in some trees. You, know, you don't you don't see. The, I mean, yeah, some trees, you know, I, we're not not all trees, but not all trees get the T-shirt now. But, uh, <laughs> but, you know, the way the leaves reveal the actual structure of the tree, the wintertime or the fall this time of year really brings our shadow selves up from our subconsciousness. It's so, you know, in our Samhain episode, we were talking about how the, the veil between the world of the spirits and the world of the living is so incredibly thin that it, they can come through and sort of vice versa. Like it's permeable. And uh, this is kind of a, a similar thing, you know, in the winter, the separation between your conscious mind and the shadow is so permeable that your shadow has more of an opportunity to jump out. I would also like to say, you know, on that note of the shadow self being able to really easily permeate that sort of that veil that we keep between the two, I think in particular for new practitioners, mm, that mm-hmm. can be something that is maybe a little bit surprising and how much more you feel it once you start practicing any sort of magic, witchcraft, I think you become so much more attuned to that. And I know for me, the first real year when I was regularly practicing during this season, I was really a little bit taken aback by how much more I was confronted with my own shadow self. Um, and I think that that's just part of the practice, you know, getting into doing energy work. Yeah. And there's, you're getting into dealing with your own energy as well as the energies around you. And so the, the shadow, so Jung define the shadow as the parts of your mind that um, you are not aware of consciously and that you, you sort of deny it's, I would say it's, it's not necessarily a negative thing. And I do want to say that. And I was also uh, saying earlier, only a doctor can like, diagnose you with seasonal depression and these kinds of things that are coming up seasonally in in a medical way but you know it's from the spiritual side of things a lot of that stuff that's coming up is your own shadow and the things that you've been pushing down all year Yeah. And on that note, like Nick said, we are not doctors. Well, he didn't say that. I'm saying we're not doctors. But also, this is where for me, I see a therapist, I see a psychiatrist, and this is a complement to that. It is not in place of. Yes, yes, yes. 
I also go to a therapist and I do I want to endorse therapy as a way for spiritual people to get in touch with their shadow selves in a productive way. Because we're going to go over um, a ritual for the new moon in November that looks at getting in touch with your shadow self, but that is good in conjunction with going to therapy. So I would say I encourage, I actively encourage people who are practitioners to go out and go to therapy because that is going to make dealing with these aspects of your shadow self and assimilating them. Uh, do you ever watch Star Trek? I have. Yes, indeed. Oh, man. Do you know Do you know what the Borg are? I do know what the Borg are, but tell our audience. So the Borg <laughs> in Star Trek are um, sort of, they're, they're like an android species. They are controlled by like cybernetics and they go through the universe assimilating other species and learning from them and becoming stronger and smarter along the way. And so I, you know, that idea of assimilation comes up a lot in shadow work and it just kept making me think of the Borg because one of the things they always say is uh, you will be assimilated. And that's kind of the idea that you want to take with your shadow self. So they're always going to have a seat at the table. I mean, they are you. So we're not talking about a separate person. We're talking about aspects of yourself that your conscious mind has rejected for some reason or another. Yeah. And that, you know, the reason your conscious mind rejects it can be so diverse too. You know, it's maybe it's something that you've been taught is inherently bad about yourself by society, by, you know, this crazy patriarchal, capitalist, heteronormative, white-run society. You know, maybe it's also something that is a struggle, something that you're a little bit embarrassed by this tendency within yourself. I mean, there's no one reason that these things get pushed to the back, but that's why a therapist is so great because they can help you also root out why that piece was pushed to the shadow. And I think that's a really important part of this type of work. Like I said, everyone has this shadow. And one of the great aims of the craft is to help people become their whole and authentic selves, which will unfortunately require some tedious work in therapy, in your practice, in your meditation practice. Like this is something that you're not, you're not just going to go out in your garden and meditate once and and find a solution for assimilating your shadow self. Yeah, this is like the not grammable part of a witchcraft practice. This is like the meaty part of it that you have to do to be effective. But I also think you have to do this to be a good person, honestly, to be a well-rounded, you know, well-adjusted person. You need to be able to incorporate this shadow self. So, and the idea with this kind of work, again, is not to get rid of the shadow because that is an inescapable part of yourself with both positive and negative aspects. And so what we want to do, since the shadow will always have a seat at the table, so to speak, is to hear it, to integrate it, and to react to it. And so, Shannon, you had sent me some reading over this weekend uh, from your Moon Planner, I believe is where that came from, or you're going to correct me here? 
Well, I mean, it is, it's the many moons lunar planner. And I just want to do a, a plug for it because it is this phenomenal piece of, it's a collection of spells and astrology that Sarah Faith Godestiner puts together. And I think that they're in pre-order right now. I already pre-ordered mine for 2021, but it's just a very generous planner that she puts together. And every month there are different spells from BIPOC and queer uh, practitioners that help you integrate the different themes of the month or the, you know, whatever the astrology is at that time. So A++ do recommend. We've got the full moon coming up November 30th, and that was when it was recommended to do this. So we're going to go over what the uh, the steps for that are. And I'm going to kind of encourage people because I think this is actually like a very great ritual. Like it makes a lot of intuitive sense. And it actually requires very minimal supplies. So, you know, we love that for the newbies. Keeping the supplies low. This is something you can do. So it's going to involve meditation. So the first thing we're going to need is a good, quiet, private place to do this without interruption. I personally like to go to the green belt and find a quiet spot when I'm doing any kind of meditation. But if that's not available to you, being in the room alone should be fine. I mean, and I like to do things like this in the bath. I know that there's writing and stuff like that. I'm I'm fine with getting paper and stuff wet if I'm doing magic in the bath. And for me, I think meditations like this, um, maybe it's my Piscean moon, but I feel really connected to that spiritual side of myself when I'm physically in water. So I think that could be a good option for people too. When we were talking about last time, you know, the bath can be a powerful manifestation tool and it can be a powerful energetic tool, but it can also just be a good time to have some private time. So if you're needing to do some meditation you know you're already alone you're already relaxed might be a good time but um so you're gonna need some supplies to take notes as well so um if you are in the bath maybe uh maybe not maybe not a pen you know maybe a pencil or something um but so to begin with you're gonna ask yourself what blocks you're facing with or like what aspects of your your shadow or what you have repressed in your conscious subconscious mind um, are, are jumping out at you right now, or, you know, even like, what are you scared of? You know, what are you, what are you fearful of? What are you jealous of? Like, these are very strong aspects of the shadow. Um, and you're gonna, you're gonna ask yourself, like, what's popping up right now? And it's a good time, you know, maybe list those out, maybe say them out loud, maybe you write them down as a list. It can be very, very powerful to to create lists like this. Like, what challenges are you facing? When you look back at it, maybe even like, you know, later on, a few weeks later on, it can provide you with so much clarity to see that what felt so big in that moment when you were writing it down ended up not being much of anything or vice versa you know it gives you good context so you're thinking about these aspects of your shadow you're thinking about what's blocking you you're listing them out and while you're doing this you're you're trying to visualize like a like a physical embodiment of your shadow and so we're not just talking about like imagining like a character or like a spirit. I mean, this could even be like colors that you're associating, 
feelings that you're associating, like physical feelings, you know, if you're closing your eyes and you're thinking about your blocks and these aspects of your shadow and you're feeling that the tension in your muscles and you're, you know, you're feeling physical sensations or you're having like very specific memories will even come up that you might not even think are related. You know, you're trying to visualize like a physical manifestation of your shadow and you might have memories come up or you might have auditory sensations come up or you might you know think about a smell and all of that is important and all of that you just need to take note of you know like whatever is going through your mind at this time like taking thorough notes because you know the small details can be very revealing here yeah and you'll you will think that you'll remember everything that is true you won't you will (laughs) not take the notes so while you are Doing this visualization while you're in this meditative state, you're not taking notes. I do want to be clear on that. (laughs) You know, you're not like pen in hand. Like when you come out of your meditative state, you want to write down everything. And that's going to become a part of the ritual. And it's also very encouraged. Do a sketch, do a drawing. If you had some memories come up, if you actually saw like a and like an embodied form of your shadow, you know, was it was it tall and lanky? Was it short and squat? You know, was it an animal? Like these are very important details. Yeah. What did it sound like? Yes. For me, I'm a very auditory person. And so sound is something that's really crucial to me. So it's as much detail as you can remember. It's just going to help you. So. When we have these notes, when we've come out of our meditative state and we have our notes, we hopefully have a sketch or a drawing. Not required, though, but it is going to help kind of tie you to this later on. So using your page of notes, your sketches, your drawing, and whatever craft supplies you can have on hand. I saw, you know, you can make a little body out of pipe cleaners. That's fine. You can, you know, maybe cut your notes into a certain shape or do an origami. Now, that one I really like doing a little origami shape. If you're good at that kind of thing, you know, with your little notes, your note pages, make a little origami shape to just kind of represent like physically what the idea of your shadow is to you. And then to to take that and put that in a place of honor in your house. So that's going to be somewhere where you can see it and interact with it. And you can even have this, you know, near your, your altar. So it's like, it's facing you, you know, it's something that you can interact with that represents your shadow self. And, you know, you can kind of create this dialogue in your head with this item that you've created that has a lot of spiritual energy because you've done this meditation you've like written about what is coming up with this shadow self meditation and you put it where you can see it and then think about it listen to it you know and it, it and it and it's a representation to listen to that part of your mind to incorporate it to even just acknowledge it because that's that's really the first step you know, everything after that is the hard part. But I think the easiest part and the right step in the right direction is just acknowledging that your shadow self exists and is not going anywhere. And this ritual kind of makes that 
in your face. You know, it's like your shadow self is in your house. It's in you. So it kind of cultivates that idea of having a conversation with your shadow self when you have this object, this figure, you know, whatever you have decided to do with it that you can um, interact with. And, um, you know, I do just want to, again, say that this is not a replacement for therapy. And this is not going to cure mental illnesses. But getting in touch with your shadow self and incorporating those parts of yourself that you might prefer to ignore is going to make you, again, a more authentic person. And an authentic person is a more powerful witch. Yeah, and I... I think, too, like Nick said, this isn't meant to cure you. But I would also say if you are a person that believes that you are struggling with mental illness, I would start seeing a therapist before you embark on this. Just like a quick caveat, because this type of work can be intense. And I think you want to make sure you are also under the care of a professional if that's something in particular that you really need before you do this type of ritual. And I would also say, you know, these are accepted ideas within the psychotherapy community, the idea of the shadow self and shadow work. So they're gonna know what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, like Nick said at the beginning, a lot of this language comes from Carl Jung. So it is kind of like Psych 101. Yes. So it's you don't need to give them a whole explanation about your witchcraft practices. When you tell them you're doing shadow work, they're going to know. They're going to know. No worries there. Um, And then so we also had we had that, which is a very lovely ritual that you can do with the full moon with bringing your shadow self into the light, so to speak. And definitely something that it was recommended with that to revisit the ritual at the next full moon and see how the form or the idea or the sensation of your shadow has changed after a month of acknowledging it. Yeah, I love that. And I think that another good thing, especially if you're new to the practice, journaling is really valuable if you're a witch. It really does help. I mean, number one, you can kind of see what different spells play out like long term. But for things like this, if you do this intensive a ritual, you really do want to be able to track what changes. That way you can know, you know, what worked, what didn't. If you want to do something like this in the future, you can make it better if you have detailed good notes on how it impacted you. And uh, I would also kind of want to throw in here, um, because this is like a one of my top notes that I wanted to make sure came into the segment, is if there is something about yourself that you don't necessarily like, or if there's something about yourself um, that has caused some strife in your life, that's not necessarily your shadow. And it, in a point of fact, um, being aware of it, probably indicates that it's not so much part of your shadow. So, you know, if you're just to give an example, I'm very impatient and I'm very aware of my own impatience and it is fully manifested in my day to day life. It is something I work on, um, but I'm aware of it. And I, I would say, even though I don't like that about myself, it's not part of my shadow self and it's not part of my shadow work. And um, so you also had told me about this tarot spread that I'm interested for people to try. Um, and it's a three card 
do card spread that we can do. Um, and so it's by Sarah. I'm so, How did you pronounce? How did you say her name? I've only ever read it. Yeah, it's Sarah Faith Godestiner. Um, she is a phenomenal witch and a social activist. Um, so um, she had the shadow tarot spread that you had sent me. Three card spread. And so we got the first card, which is what parts of my shadow are ready to integrate and heal. We've got the second card. What support can I call on with this? And the third card, what does surrendering look like to me this month? So just to kind of follow up with your full moon ritual, approaching your shadow shadow self, this might be a really good like journaling activity as well to do this tarot spread, do some journaling, see where you're at. And come back to it. That's something that I often find if you are a tarot worker. Sometimes when you get a draw, you have your sort of initial understanding of what it means. But if you come back to it, you know, maybe a week later, suddenly you're seeing things a little bit differently. And I think with spreads like this that are getting at sort of big picture questions for you, it can be really useful to come back to them again. Right, right, right. Because you'll first of all, realize what the cards were trying to say if, if it was unclear. Yes. <laughs> um, and you'll be like, oh, well, I'm fucking dumb because that happened. That exact thing happened. And uh, the, uh, the tarot cards work like that for me so much it, where I'm like, you know, this, te- this seems a little unrealistic. I'm not sure if this is going to happen. And then I will look at readings that I've done a month or two ago. And I'm like, no, that happened. So um, yeah, it helps you learn to trust yourself. (laughs) So, um, so speaking of a tarot draw, I'm going to pivot here because we, we have packed so much information in this episode and we are getting up there on time. So yeah, I real quick, Nick, before you do this, I just wanted to sort of plug in in particular in the witchcraft community. I think there can be this really negative desire to sort of deny the shadow. You'll see a lot of people that are like, oh, I'm all love and light. I'm a light worker. Oh my God, the love and And, light witches. And (laughs) it's not healthy. It's not healthy. It's not normal. And it also undermines the experience of, you know, BIPOCs and queer people and other people that have been marginalized by the collective Mm. shadow when you refuse to acknowledge this. So I think that if you're really at a place where you can't dig into your personal shadow quite yet, it could also be helpful to start with thinking about the collective shadow of the people that you live around. And for us in the US, it's, you know, that collective shadow of things like racism, sexism, you know, capitalism, all of these dark things that have really influenced the way that so many of us live our lives. Sometimes it can be helpful to start on the macro before you get down to the ma- to the micro. And then you can see the way that those macro trends are influencing yourself as well. Everyone's got a shadow, you know, and you're going to have to deal with it sometime. Today does not have to be the day. And that actually comes into focus a little bit with my tarot draw. So as you all know, we're doing a tarot scope to kind of finish up the episode. 
And this week I have come, um, you know, we're doing a random number generator to pick these uh, zodiac signs to do a little tarot scope for. So uh, we got number five today, Leo. And I drew a card for Leo that really ties into that. So card for Leo is the two of wands. And um, you'll probably have seen that in our uh, little teaser post on Wednesday. But um, so we got the two of wands. And this is really going to represent a decision that needs to be made. Um, but that you're not ready to make. And that's that's the uh, that's the common logic of this card. And so it's not to discourage you from making the decision. It's also to kind of say that you will be ready when it's time. Um, but just to kind of say that, you know, if you're weighing an important decision in your life right now, you you might not be ready to make that decision. There could be more information coming in. There could be something that almost kind of makes the decision for you. So it's it's kind of watch and wait time. But Again, it's not it's not fully like, a, you know, it's not to it an expect an obstacle. You know, it, we're not looking out for anything like that. The idea here is to just wait, be patient. The answer will come to you and you will be ready to make the decision when it's actually time to make the decision. So that's that's my message to all the Leos out there. Um, I actually, I thought of a few specific Leos when I was, uh, when I was doing this. So, um, not sure if any of them listen, but, um, I was, <laughs> I was thinking of you guys, thinking of you guys when I, uh, <laughs> when I did this one. So I love that. And I love the twos in tarot because the twos really are about decisions when you're looking right. at all of the suits and, you know, wands, you've got the ace of wands, which is really like the spark of inspiration. And then it leads into the two, which is like, now you've got to figure out what your plan looks like. And that means not running ahead right now. It's like you have a decision to make. It is important. It is your decision to make. There's two very different paths before you. So make an informed decision. I think it's also part of the message here. Make an informed decision. Yeah, if you're a Leo, go talk to a Virgo. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> talk go to talk to one of your Earth friends. Go talk to Nick. Nick's got his big Virgo energy, too. I, You know, Virgo rising, you know. So people think I'm more of a Virgo than I am. <laughs> um, that's true. But Nick also gives really baller advice, to be fair. That's true. You know, you get one glass of wine in me, and I'm, I'm, I'm like the fixer. Yeah, I mean, if we gave you a bottle of wine and put you in front of, you know, the UN, I'm sure you could bring peace worldwide. Oh my god, I'm just thinking, <laughs> just thinking of scandal, and uh, <laughs> that is just all of the wine that gets drunk on that show to solve major problems. That that's my life. I mean, Olivia Pope having a dinner of a giant glass of wine and popcorn is goals, but also concerning for her long term <laughs> health. <laughs> But she, but she does so well, and you know I'm not gonna toot my own horn, but I do okay. Uh, Nick, Nick does well. I'll toot his horn. Toot, toot. <laughs> uh, so I think, I think that brings us to the bitter end here. It does. Yeah, I want to say thank you, Nick, for bringing that topic. I think it's it's one that's so big and so hard to condense into a podcast, but I feel like you did such a good job of introducing it. Um, so I think this is the perfect spot to wrap up for today. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We would really love to hear from you. Um, again, if you have ideas or thoughts or complaints, catty comments, shoot us an email or message us on Instagram. Um, that email is wandsandfronspod at gmail.com. And our Instagram handle is wandsandfronspod. Anna, you guys definitely know the deal, but we think it was really cool if you subscribed wherever you're listening so you're not missing an episode. But if you're extra super generous, so Shannon knows, I've just come back from rehab. I have a very serious addiction. Um, I'm addicted to stars. Okay, so if you want to, <laughs> if you want to give us, a, give us, you know, give us like five stars. I think I'll be cool if I can get five stars. If five stars will keep Nick on the straight and narrow. You know. Um, <laughs> anyway, we hope that you guys will join us again next week. Um, until next time. Uh, blessed be, bitches. Blessed be, bitches. Goodbye. Bye now. Or short, 